Welcome to episode 101 of the MTB podcast, presented and hosted by Worldwide Cyclery. This is Jeff. I'm Jared. I'm Liam. And today we have a special guest on the podcast for a second time. I'm Nico. Nico is a longtime friend of mine and a World Cup racer who's doing something unbelievably unique in 2022. You are building your own bike and racing it. Any, any more description on that? Yeah, I've, uh, I've raced World Cups for the past 13 seasons, and this year I thought it'd be a fun project to take everything I learned from the, the various teams I've raced for and, and build my own bike. That was kind of just custom tailored to me exactly, and uh, learn a lot about the process of building a bike through racing it and developing it at the races, which is uh, it's a good way to accelerate the development process. The, the date of the race doesn't change, so you got a de- deadline there, and uh, you, you always learn so much more pushing it at the top level. So it's been a really fun season yeah. getting to do all that. Nice. Yeah, it's been unbelievably cool to just be a part of one of the sponsors sponsoring what your project is doing and how it's been evolving is rad. And you were on episode 91, so if anyone wants to go back to episode 91, that was kind of when we were talking more about that pre a whole bunch of races and learning that you're going to talk about now. And on that episode, we covered a lot of high pivot stuff because that was kind of earlier on in the days where you were testing two different bikes, one high pivot, one regular pivot. Um Yeah, which was pretty interesting. So we're going to talk about all of that stuff, but if you really want to dive deep into the high pivot stuff, go back to episode 91. We'll link that in the show notes, right, Jerry? Yes, we sure will. Um, And then, uh, yeah, let's just dive deep. We also plugged Instagram to see if we could get some good questions for Nico. And, uh, yeah, we've got those, we've got those queued up, but before we jump into that, we did want to make a couple quick mentions. Uh, we have a, another chasing Epic trip coming up in, is it in June? June. I should know that. June 10th to 15th. Yeah. We're going to Whistler. Thanks, Jared. Pemberton. You're welcome. And, uh, yeah, it's rad. That'll be in the show notes. It's going to be great. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that one. So if you're interested in going on that, I think there's two spots left, a couple spots left on that one. Yeah. Yeah. That should be fun. So. Pull that up if you're if you're trying to put on if you're trying to get on a Whistler trip uh, next year. That's going to be a good time. We're going to do a bike park day. I'm looking forward to all that. Mm. You, and can't, then, you can't get a Whistler and not do the bike park. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking the same thing. Um, another thing I wanted to mention was the AZ Classic, which Ooh. is a what is the AZ Classic? It's your friend, right, Liam? Yeah, running this thing. Um, buddy of mine is putting it on. It is a mountain bike race in Arizona, um, and it's kind of having a lot of different categories. So if you're pretty much cross country or pump track uh, kind of racer, you want to do some cool new racing. Um, yeah, he's putting on an event called the AZ Classic, January 27th through 29th. Um, categories are cross country, cross country short track, pump track, ultimate pump track, and e bike. So, and you're going to race them all. I'm going to race them all. He's um, going to win them all. I'm not going to win them all. <laughs> Don't but say that, man. Hopefully, hopes. Yeah. I'm going to finish the fastest out of all five categories combined for the overall. Can I ask a question? What up? What's the difference between pump track and ultimate pump track? <laughs> a valid question. One's it ultimate. is a valid question. I'm pretty sure, yeah, one's more ultimate. Duh. Oh. Um, Duh. I think the ultimate pump tracks, the new thing that Crankworks is doing, is basically like Red Bull straight rhythm. Got it. There's no turns. With like no chain or anything? But I think both of them have no chain. Okay. But I think one of them's in a straight line, and then Whoa. the other one has is like a you know normal pump track course, ultimate. Um, yeah. And then the e bike cool. race, I think the cross country and the e bike course are on. It's at Arizona Cycle Park, which puts on a lot of motocross races. 
Um, I think both those courses are going to like go on the motorcycle course and it's pretty cool. It like drops in this big pit. Wow. Um, so there's like 400 feet of elevation and lap. So on an e-bike, it will be pretty fun. A cross country bike, it might hurt a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sounds like a good time. Yeah. So that's January 27th to 29th and, uh, yeah. Azclassicmtb.com. Worldwide Cyclery, Kettle Mountain Trail One. We're all supporting that race. I love supporting small races. I think that they're unbelievably fun and valuable to, valuable to society and humans. Uh, we also support a ton of Nico's races. Nico, you have affiliation and ownership of three bike parks and racer. I don't even, it's too much. Can give, give the audience a rundown on that, please. Yeah, you guys have been supporting our downhill southeast races since we started them in 2016. We have a series of downhill races every year. We started out with just three a season, and now we have seven coming up this next season. And they're huge, too. And they're just downhill, which is pretty interesting to see that there's that many people interested. Um, like this year, we averaged 350 riders at each race. Wow. And most of those riders are, are kids under 18. So it's pretty cool. Like when I started racing, I was one of only like five kids that was under 18 that was racing. And now we had to split up the categories from like 12 and under, 13 and 14, 14 and 15, 16 and 17. (laughs) So there's like so many kids categories. It's cool to see them all um, getting into it because those kids will be the future. Um, And then my brother put on an enduro series past two years that you guys have been supporting the enduro Southeast. Um, And yeah, I think like you said, those are, grassroots races like that are so important it gives something to those core riders at a grassroots level that they can be excited about and go and give them a reason to go and train and ride their bike more and give them something to look forward to and and then at the event just hang out with their friends and it's kind of something for everyone if your goal is to go there and just have fun you can have a great weekend with the boys and if you if your goal is to like progress in racing you can have some good fun friendly competition to do that and then, yeah, the bike parks, too. Like, I started Windrock uh, 2017, and that's been awesome. It's been, like, one of the hot spots for, for U.S. downhill for training. Like, we all go there in the winter to train, and it's been super beneficial. For, in Tennessee, right? Yeah, Windrock yeah. is in Knoxville, Tennessee. And it's been awesome because we have year-round riding there, and you see almost all the top riders in the country, riders from around the world, and, like, brands doing their testing there now. So it's been an awesome spot for that, and it's grown into a really cool bike park and very well-known in the U.S. And then um, we started Canuga two years ago, which is a trail bike park. It's pedal up. There's two climbing options, a road and a climbing trail, and we have it's laid out like a downhill park is. Once you get to the top, you have eight trails to choose from. You're never more than 15 minutes from your car, so it's, it's very um, time time efficient to go out there if, if you only have enough time to do one lap you can get a good one in and not waste any of your climb get a good descent out of it and if you have more time you can make a whole ride out of it so it's a pretty cool spot and all the trails are really w- well maintained which has been something that people have been excited to to come to the bike park for yep um and then just this past weekend we opened rock creek which is in conjunction with ride canuga and it's like just down the road um and it's a shuttle park. So it's pretty cool to have a shuttle up park in my neck of the woods. We would always drive over to Windrock, which takes a couple hours to get to Tennessee. So it's nice to have a downhill spot right in my backyard now. 
Yeah, amazing. I'm looking forward to riding Rock Creek because I, I was skeptical on Canuga. I thought, oh, pedal up bike park. I was like, I don't know. But then I went there almost a year ago, right? I was there yeah. in September of last year, and it was awesome. I was I was shocked at how well it, it was just laid out. Well, the tracks were super fun, unbelievably flowy. Something there for everyone. Some good techie stuff, but some plenty of good flow stuff and jump trails and people just <laughs> sending their lives and huge smiles <laughs> on their faces. And I was like, wow, this is this is rad. This is way cooler than I thought it was going to be I, I loved it so and uh i thought it was cool that there were people just ripping up on e-bikes people ripping up pushing up downhill bikes people pedaling up trail bikes i was like oh this is this is a pretty fun place to so i'm excited to see what rock creek is rock creek going to be a little bit more focused on downhill or kind of everything well the idea is to make it for trail bikes but with a shuttle i think like everybody would rather get more downhill time than climbing time yep. so um, it's going to be similar to Canuga and, and in the Asheville area, just trail riding is much more popular, I guess in general, way more trail bikes and mm. enduro bikes. So if we have place where people can take the bikes they already have and get shuttled, then I think it's a pretty sweet combo. Yeah. And then I built a downhill track for myself to practice on, but most of the trails are pretty good on trail bikes. Yeah. Yeah. Canuga is sweet too, because it's, it's almost like going to the skate park. Like everything's yeah. so tight that you don't need to go with somebody you just go and ride and you'll probably see your friends there or you see other people to ride with and you can hang out and session stuff and when you're on the climbing trail you can see all the other trails and see other people riding so it's pretty pretty cool like community vibe there yeah yeah i definitely got that when i was there um yeah i mean i feel like north carolina now is this hotbed if you Go over to Asheville, you have Pisgah, you have Canuga, you have Wind Rock, you have like all these things within a three hour drive or less. And it's a super fun place to take a mountain bike trip. So, yeah, I would, I would recommend it for anyone wanting to go ride any type of bike, which is also kind of why you moved there. Yeah. Right? I mean, <laughs> how long have you lived in North Carolina now? 10 years now. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah. I grew up in Pennsylvania and went down there to ride in the wintertime just to get some more time on the bike training and um the mountains were awesome like not just for the weather but year round like the trails are really good mm-hmm. and i just stuck around i thought it was a great place to be it's really cheap to live there uh, the area is really cool and um most importantly like the terrain and the and the trails are awesome so yeah i love it yeah Nice. That's right. Yeah, that's a good place to to live when you want to train year round, and especially I guess most of your training happens in the off season. Since the on season, you're actually full on racing. How many races did you do in 2022? Um, I don't know total. It was like a lot. I it did was a lot. Yeah. I did eight World Cups and World Champs, and then a bunch of our downhill southeast races, uh, continental champs, Pan American champs. Yeah, Pan American yeah. champs. Um, a couple of nationals, U.S. Open, so just a few, just a few races <laughs> on, on the docket. For- uh, man, a couple of times it was like eight weeks in a row, and it was like getting to the end of it. I was like, man, it feels like whatever you were doing two weeks ago was like a world away. Like, yeah. like years passed. Yeah, you're not, every day you wake up, you look around, and you're like, okay, where am I today? Yeah. <laughs> where am I today, and where am I racing? But it's cool because you're you're like doing you're riding your bike in different places. Yeah. So I, I think it's pretty sweet to get to do all that. Yeah. And so basically, I think every single one of those races was on your self-designed bike. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we started out with the two prototype frames. Even when I raced in Costa Rica, I raced this Costa Rica Open and then the Continental Champs two weekends in a row and raced one on the 
kind of standard pivot height bike that I that I made, and then the next weekend raced the high pivot bike. So I got to race both back to back. In the beginning, was able to like ride bike both bikes back to back at races, and like even in the same day in a practice session, switch between the two bikes, which was pretty cool. I tried to design those two bikes with as few variables as possible. Because a lot of times, if you just hop on high pivot bike there's so many other things that are different about it there's there's few chances where people have to like apples to apples test with one variable that they want to isolate so it was cool in the beginning of the season to race on those and then um, ended up going with kind of a hybrid of the two i went for a standard pivot height bike but with a with a main pivot that was higher than average and the idea was that I liked the way that the low pivot turned. I felt like that is one thing that I could improve on with my riding. I was pretty good at plowing through rocks and like high speed stuff, being strong on the bike, which is where the high pivot excelled. I felt like I could gain more time in my races by getting through the corners quicker and the low pivot bike was cornering faster. And I liked it better with the O-chain as well. So if I was going to commit to using the O-chain which takes away some of the pedal kick and um, just gives it more of a, takes away harshness from a lot of the bumps, which is in the direction of what the high pivot would do. I was going to optimize it to use the O-chain. If I was going to pay the price, which is like a lack of engagement, really, I was going to make my pivot a little higher. It's not a production bike. I don't have to worry about like, is if someone buys this, are they going to be able to service their O-chain and will it work without it? Like I was making a race bike for myself. So it was cool to be able to do that. And, um, yeah, I went with like kind of a mid pivot design that didn't use an either pulley, which I don't really think has been done before. Um, the O chain's a new thing, so it wouldn't really be sweet to ride the bike without it. And, um, yeah, raced that design throughout the season. I had it ready for the first world cup. I only really got to ride it for like a week before, like I said, the deadlines of the races, it's like, you know, with vendors and getting things made, materials, like everybody knows the supply chain issues that we've been having. The date of the race doesn't change, so you got to get that stuff ready, and it's always a time crunch to get it in time, and then the day or two you have to ship it and then build it and then make sure it all works and go to the race. So I only rode that bike a few days before the first World Cup and then raced it there and um, raced it all season, and it kind of evolved. I, I stuck with the same geometry design and kinematics that I was, that I designed from the beginning. Um, and I improved my construction and some of the tubing that we were using with the bike. It started out when I was using the high pivot bike, the low pivot bike, then evolving to this mid pivot design that I went with. It was so exciting because you were changing ride quality every time. And as it went, it was chasing fine details of construction and tube wall thickness, putting gussets in different places and the different shapes of the gussets, gussets to um, kind of alleviate the stress through the through the whole bike so that it's more durable. Stuff that you're never going to feel when you ride it, but makes it hold up longer. So those details was like when the real work started. And it wasn't as much fun because you weren't chasing ride quality anymore. It was like chasing yeah. the quality control of building these things. So yeah. it was it was pretty cool looking to all that. And um, some moments were stressful, 
Like I was telling these guys on the trail today, I could have gone and bought a Canyon and raced that paid three grand for the frame and raced it. And it would have been like, my bike's probably 3% better for me than that bike would have been, but came with so much extra work to, yeah. to organize and logistics of like making my own frame. Yeah, It was an undertaking, but I, I wanted to do that. Like yeah. I've, I've raced a ton of seasons and this was just such a cool, interesting project that I was really passionate about and proud to be able to do. And, um, will only get easier from now. Like the first time you do something is going to be the hardest and you learn so much along the way that next season will be even easier. Um, but yeah, there was some stressful moments. I raced snowshoe world cup with a cracked frame. I had four frames of that version and I, um, I was going through them all at the race before that and cracked one practicing before we went there. And when we got to the race, I had like one left that wasn't cracked and it cracked while we were there and I knew I had to race with it. And I just told my mechanic, like, just don't tell me anything unless it's unsafe. Like, yeah. don't let me race on something. I'm going to die. But I don't want to know about it. <laughs> just put it Imagine <laughs> that conversation. Put it out of my brain. And then luckily we, <laughs> we drove up to Mount St. Anne, which we got to go past um, Frank the Welder's shop who made all the frames. And he, um, he had a new one for us to race the yeah. next weekend at Mount St. Anne. Which, which was cool. But yeah, there was a couple, couple times where we were cracking stuff and, um, knew that we were running out of spares and trying to like make cracked stuff go longer than it should. And really props a lot to my mechanic Ancho Perez. He did an awesome job and it wasn't just taking new parts out of the trailer and bolting them on. Like he had to do a lot of, of, um, of grit work to, to make it through the season. And he, he was the right man for the job. Yeah. So. Taking in and out bottom brackets and headsets. Like I would imagine. Yeah. He's, he was so, so good times, at frame swaps. So <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I think I swapped 50 frames. This sounds year. like a oh, special man. version of hell to me to just have to change out headset cups over and over again. In the mud. In like the mud. Yeah. With your shoes oh. wet all day. Oh, <laughs> That is so brutal. Well, for those of you listening, um, if if you want to, if you want to kind of dig more into the details of this stuff, Nico's been documenting all of this on his YouTube channel. He's also written a couple really in-depth articles about O-Chain and about the cranks he's using, uh, made by 5Dev. If you just hit the Worldwide Cyclery site, type in N-E-K-O, hit enter. Uh, We made a landing page for Nico, links to his YouTube channel, has those articles on there, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Props to Jared for making that page. Thanks. He coded it up. Oh yeah, um, he's a he's a tech wizard over there. Big 100%. code guy. Typed yeah. in all the HTML to make that page. Hundred <laughs> percent. You did it quick too. Remember? Like yeah. I was like, "Hey Jeff, I'm going to announce this tomorrow. <laughs> I want to do it on New Year's Day because yeah. people will be looking at their phones and no other brands are going to do a no announcement on New Year's Day." <laughs> Jared got it done. Yeah. Yeah, it was a fun it project. Out. I, I love that kind of stuff. So but yeah, so if you want to check that out, um, go there. We also made a sort of a collection page that has all the various different brands that uh, support Nico and the stuff that he rides and that he's been riding all 2022 season. Um, yeah, and speaking of riding that stuff, Jared and Liam, you guys got to go out and actually ride Nico's bike today. Mm-hmm. Um, what what was it like? I mean, Nico, or you've you've never ridden like proper downhill bike, downhill bike. It's just been a little while. Yeah, Uh, last bike I rode was a V10 in Whistler, probably almost three years ago. Yeah, Um, yeah, it was a blast. I mean, downhill bikes are fun. Yeah, Yeah. like I mean, yeah, it's been a long time since I've ridden a bike with that much travel, but um, 
yeah, I mean, super solid. Like, you know, usually when somebody has a bike they designed themselves or like built themselves, right? It's not like that great. Like, yeah, that's not like Nico. If Nico actually built it, I'm not sure I'd write it. <laughs> but, but Dude, I don't blame you. No, I mean, <laughs> but it was refined in a way and like uh, super solid. And it just was obviously confidence inspiring because it was, I mean, yeah, a ton of travel and suspension felt great. And um, yeah, it just soaked up chatter and. I mean, yeah, like at Rocky Peak, you're going off a little drop into a bunch of chattery stuff. And I was just like, oh, soaked it all up. Yeah. It was great. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I don't have like a direct back-to-back comparison, obviously. But um, it's almost like driving F1 cars. Nobody really drives F1 cars very often. <laughs> yeah. So when you get to drive one. It's fast. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> fast, great. Oh, Lots yeah. of travel. Um, but no, it was it was awesome. And like it was, yeah, super quiet and fun. And um, yeah, solid as heck yeah yeah solid as heck yeah yeah i was impressed just seeing it for the first time it, it looks a lot nicer than i was anticipating yeah it looks less garage made than i initially had thought it might be <laughs> like in the photos initially i was like oh yeah it looks nice but i, I figured out oh, well, at some point when i see this this year it's gonna look like it was made in the garage but and i saw it, i was like oh nice work nico this yeah. looks it looks better than i thought it would look yeah, better than i think your desk looks <laughs> for sure <laughs> all those tubes came from mcmaster car yeah <laughs> no I mean, it looks like a production bike basically right I yeah mean, the quality i mean and i've seen like obviously from the first iteration of the frame that you made and like just all the improvements and refinements that you've made i mean it's visibly apparent when you look at the bike cool but yeah it was great I want yeah one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah we're, we're gonna get to that question later because yeah. de- there's definitely some people that yeah. want to buy that bike for sure um what do you think liam <clears throat> uh yeah, it was solid. I mean, similar to Jared, it's hard to have a, you know, hop on a new bike and have a, a back-to-back comparison. I did ride uh, the Crestline downhill bike quite a bit this summer, which is loosely based actually on Nico's Geo. So Troy didn't kind of talk with Nico and, like, base his Geo very similar to Nico's race bike. So going on that and then going to Nico's bike, um, I definitely feel – like Nico's bike, the the Crestline is more of a virtual high pivot than Nico's, so there's a bit more chain growth, um, which makes the bike kind of feel the rear end feel longer through stuff. So Nico's bike felt like a little bit more like a normal bike, which is easier to get used to right away mm-hmm. than than a high pivot. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I had a few runs on it; it felt solid. I mean, immediately I went from actually riding my Crestline with a single crown. Uh, today to riding Nico's and just hopping on a, a true downhill bike with a dual crown is quite a bit um, different, just more solid. So it felt really good. Um, yeah, it was, it was fun. I'd, I'd love to have like a, a couple full days on it in a, in a proper bike park or proper downhill track to really get some runs in on it. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's right. Nico, have you ever considered having those bikes, or well, maybe at one point in the future, but having them sort of available for people to test out at, I don't know, Wind Rock or Rock Creek or Canuga? Yeah, I, th- I think it would be cool to do like a demo day or, or something like that. Liability waiver has got to get included. <laughs> in there. I mean, I tested them pretty hard. They're, they're not going to break in half. Yeah, they, that's for they, sure. they might get a stress crack, but... I even yeah. tested them with that, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even raced them, World, World yeah. Cup tested with stress crash. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not going to get much better than that. No, but Logan and I have, have ridden the latest one. We've got 450 runs on it now. We've been splitting our time between the same frame, and um, it's got no issues, so they're, they're definitely getting more durable. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, 
down the road, if if we ever do go for like a small production run, it'd be cool to have a demo, get people to be able to take a run on them, get them set up. I think one of the things that these guys felt comfortable on the bike right away is like I came prepared with the right settings for them. Like I knew their size and weight. I have King Creek made some reach adjust headsets so we could get the reach they wanted. Had various springs and we had the shock pump to set up the fork the way they wanted. And I have a pretty good understanding of like how to adjust the, the rebound to their spring rate and get them feeling pretty close right away. And not really even just for my bike. Like I feel like if I had those tools for most bikes, I could probably get them feeling pretty comfy. So just taking like the time and care to to make sure that they were on the right starting out on the right foot, um, I feel like you can get people off on the on the right direction and feeling good on the bike. Yeah, that's cool. kind of good advice yeah. for any any mountain biker really that <laughs> yeah. is getting any type of new bike or riding a bike for the first time. Yeah, yeah I, I I get a lot of questions about setup from people who um, don't even know what tire pressure they have. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe start there, right? Yeah. Should we give a uh, shout out yeah. to FBI Matt right now? That that was that was directed at him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so speaking of uh, uh, something I care about is supporting people having fun on bikes, which is why I'm always into sponsoring racers and races. Um, and then uh, FB, FBI Matt, uh, he's a friend of ours, and he's he is the uh, manager of the B team, which he spun up in 2022, which is an amateur race team. FBI's most wanted enduro race team, um, <laughs> and and uh, yeah, Matt's Matt's a novice rider who's progressing a lot and, and having fun, and um, he's you know been his questions have evolved. He may have never known his tire pressure, and now he's you know text me photos of uh, his brake bleed gone wrong and be like, oh my god, what do I do? I'm like, I absolutely. I'm not no like I'm not gonna help you with this like what, why <laughs> why did you why did you do that? Um, oh, it's, it's and then you direct him to my inbox. So yeah, thanks. And then Zach hears about it too. Probably. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. But uh, Nico, I think you were definitely inspiration for Matt to to race bikes more and and also spin up the B team because he kind of saw what you did with uh, you know designing your own bike and getting it built and racing it and frameworks and he was like, man, I can do something like that and he puts together the b team and those guys are out there shredding so yeah they're <laughs> awesome cool. they, they came and did a couple of our races this year yeah nice it was just so funny like so i found i find matt so interesting he's got so many cool stories yeah but um he said that before his downhill race it was the first downhill race he ever did was the most nervous he has ever been wow and i'm like <laughs> dude the stories that i have heard from you and you're now racing like a cat three downhill race that nobody <laughs> knows you and it matter like you could get first place or last place and nobody's going to tell the difference. And this is like super nervous for you. <laughs> I just found it so funny. But uh, he's like jokes aside, like he always asks us funny set, set up questions, but he's one of like the the most positive and also funny people I've ever met. And it's just like such a pleasure to have around. So yeah. I love it whenever he comes out to ride. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I I agree. I think that uh, you know, when you get into the sport of mountain biking, it is important to just stay positive, stay curious, test a lot of things and laugh at yourself and yeah. Have fun. Yeah. That that is definitely an important piece of the puzzle. So, with your YouTube channel this year, Nico, you kind of documented a ton of stuff of what you changed on the bike, your races, all of that. Any common threads that you felt were important in terms of what people were asking you? 
whether it was about setup or the bike or the future of your races or um i i think a lot of people are interested in like if i was plan what my plans were if i was going to sell it or 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 how that was going to go and um i try to keep it open like if if i can get the bike to a spot where i'm really happy with it and i think it's durable and reliable enough to sell then there's obviously people are asking for it. So it'd be cool to offer like a small production run and, um, and make something that, you know, share what I've made with other people, get them to experience the bike too. But that wasn't the re- really the, like my motivation for doing it. I just have been super interested in bike design and wanted to m- see how it went to make something like it just wanted to try it and see what would happen. And I didn't want to be like, I find that a lot of times like you can make decisions based on sales or meeting um, like production deadlines and like, we got to get this thing done and we got to sell it now. And I just wanted to make a race bike for myself that I was comfortable with and was everything that I wanted and see where it went from there. So um, yeah, I guess for everybody asking about the sales of the bike, like, there's no plans to do it right now. Um, but I am thinking about like now changes that I'm making, like, is it possible now to put that into production stuff that I want to try for next season? Um, instead of just buying more expensive prototype frames, like think about the possibility long-term of, of what this change could mean. So, um, yeah, it was, it was just cool with the YouTube videos to, to be able to show everything that went into making the bikes I think a lot of brands, um, they either have bikes for sale now that they they can't show the next one because they want people to buy the ones that are for sale now, or they um, they're they're afraid to show the failures. They they have different, and and maybe like also they don't know where they're going with it yet, so they can't really give as transparent of a view at the development of new bikes. Uh, I'm not really sure. But it was cool that I didn't have any of those those things to worry about. I could just yeah, you had nothing holding you back. Yeah, like if it didn't work, um, it, I was the only one to blame. And if it was awesome, then I could be proud. So <laughs> it's kind of a free feeling to be able to do that. And I think people enjoyed seeing that process. And I, I'm not an engineer. I've just raced a lot and could feel what I liked out of the bike and um, just tried to show like what a what an average person can do making a making a bike without the resources of a huge bike company that's been doing it for year after year. Yeah. So I think that process, just showing it like an honest open look at that, was was pretty cool. I, I at least I found that it was unique and something that was different. Like a lot of times racing World Cups, I feel like there's a couple photographers. They take pictures in a few places on each track, and then you end up putting up the same picture as everyone else with you in it instead of some other rider and a similar caption, World Cup, Mount St. Anne, day two, whatever. So it's hard to, to like, do something different. Like, there's obviously the, the top couple guys that are winning and on the podium and fighting for wins. But after that, there's still 160 guys in all the races, and everybody's kind of doing the same thing. So I found, like, this was a cool way to do something that – uh, resonated with me personally and was interesting and unique at the same time. Yep. 
Yeah, I love it. It's it's been rad to see it evolve. Um, definitely something that is. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if anyone's ever really pulled off quite a feat so far. I mean, I guess maybe a racer has designed a bike, but I've, I don't know if they've ever done it in the same way you did it. Oh, they definitely never documented it like you did, which is pretty cool. It's kind of the uh, the epitome of bike nerdage. If you're if you're deep down in the funnel and you really want to learn about every little thing, yeah, I was surprised cool. how many people were interested in it. Honestly, like I thought it would be really cool for the core mountain bikers, but maybe there was just a lot more of those people than I expected there to be. Like a lot of the information I could see being really boring if you weren't really into it, but the support I got and the amount of people that were into it was, um, was overwhelming. So it was pretty cool. I was mm -hmm. proud to see that. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's amazing. Well, we're going to have a quick word from, uh, one of our extremely high paying sponsors and we'll be back with some rapid fire questions for Nico. And now a word from our sponsors. This is downhill Billy here with Windrock bike park. We got bigger jumps, better berms and faster lifts than any bike park in the world. So come on down to Windrock bike park where we own the park. And now, back to the show. Questions. Questions from the audience for you, Nico. Uh, the first question, what is the biggest challenge you had to overcome while designing your bike? Uh, the biggest challenge would be manufacturing. Um, it was is just tough from a person that doesn't have the resource of a bike brand behind them and contacts with factories um, to be able to figure out the right path efficiently. Um to be able to do all this so a combination of of the manufacturing and then the funding as well like i've spent money that i saved from racing over my career which if you ask most world cup racers isn't a lot um so you got to be smart with how you spend it when you don't have a lot of money and figuring out how to build the bike um with those parameters was was the biggest challenge nice well i guess we'll jump into the next one I guess this is a weird one for me to ask, but Nico, how much travel do you have? And I'm not talking about your bike. Me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to answer that. Just, Jeff made me ask. Guess question. We're, we're gonna find out later. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey Jeff, you made him ask that, and you said the show had to be PG. <laughs> yeah, that was PG. Okay. You should see PG. the stuff on Disney Channel nowadays. That was PG. <laughs> <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> as long as as long as it stays right here and doesn't go any further and we start asking the next question, which is, uh, what's, a more some, what's the most important ride characteristic to you in your race bike? Um, that transition? That was great. That's a tough one because I've gone back and forth with the, when you're designing a bike, everything is compromises. So you turn one dial up and another one goes down. You can make a bike that has one superpower or is pretty consistent across – a variety of situations and i've i've gone back and forth between thinking like certain things are a priority and others aren't that important and come around to that they're all important i wouldn't say that one thing is more important than another um, but maybe for the average person something that they wouldn't consider as much um, that is a issue for racing is braking quality most world cups you're dragging the brakes most of the time, like more significantly more time than not, you're braking or at least trail braking. And how the suspension performs under braking is a big consideration for designing a, a downhill bike. Um, bikes with lower 
anti-rise are going to ride higher in the travel and be more active under braking. Bikes with higher anti-rise are going to squat. And it's nice on smooth terrain if the bike squats in under braking because it has a really predictable chassis feel and gives you more downforce into the ground. But when the tracks are really rough, like most racetracks are, there's huge braking holes, rocks and roots and all these steep sections that you're braking. If your bike feels like it's locking up, if you're putting all your energy into the spring when you're loading it, then it feels like you, you have a hardtail when you're braking. So a bike that rides higher and is more active under braking is going to get more grip and feel like it's absorbing the bumps more under braking. So something for a downhill racer to consider. Yeah, that was insightful and cool and not what I was expecting. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of where the O-Chain comes into play a little bit. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, does the O-Chain, I guess the O-Chain still does something when you're braking, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it helps a lot when the free hub isn't moving. So when you're braking and your your hub is locked up, the distance between your cassette and your chain ring as your suspension compresses is growing. And if the rear hub can't rotate forward because your wheel is locked, then your crank can only rotate backwards. So it's pulling back on your, on your foot, really. That's, that's on the crank arm. So it creates a harsh spot in the travel. And the O-chain allows the chain ring to rotate back and take away that harshness of the chain tensioning. So um, under braking, for sure, the O-chain offers some square edge absorption that makes it the bike feel smoother yeah that's cool so do you think the o-chain would be necessary on a bike with less than six inches of travel i don't think it matters as much the amount of travel i would say more so the intended use so if you are riding downhill sections of trail that have square edge bumps on them then you can see a benefit from the O-chain and that it will make those feel smoother. Mm. If pedal engagement is important, whether if you're doing a technical climb or uh, you just want a snappy feel out of a turn, if you're racing cross country, obviously, or um, a dual slalom race or something, obviously you'd never want that. But um, if that's not as important and the, not necessarily even the efficiency, but like, the snappiness of your climb isn't a huge consideration. If you just like to get up to the top so you can enjoy the downhill, I'm sure that most situations you'll enjoy the downhill more with the O-Chain. Mm. Some good insight. That is some good insight. Nice. O-Chain should be cataloging all of the things that you say and write, Nico, because <laughs> they have a lot of explaining to do. <laughs> it's just hard to understand product, and I think you've done a better job explaining it than anyone including them themselves it's hard for me to even understand what fabrizio says because his broken english <laughs> he's very italian and very proud of his italian made product yeah that's awesome which is cool yeah, there's cool. passion yeah. there but it's also a very complicated technical piece that's hard to explain yeah do you think we could get jeff to ride an o-chain on his next bike Ooh. Yeah, I mean, if we can make it uh, lighter than a regular chain ring. 
Perfect answer. <laughs> Perfect I, answer. I don't I don't sacrifice uh, performance for weight. I try and get the performance I am desiring while also making it as light as possible. Fair. So that's my that's my thought on being a, a weight weenie. Um, so. Liam is silent. Yeah. <laughs> I I just don't feel like weight and performance have any direct correlation. Yeah, they're compromises, like you said earlier. Normally. Normally. Yeah, not always, but sometimes. I look for the ones that aren't. Interesting. Maybe we can dive into my weight weenie theory on a, another time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Liam, what's the next question? Uh, Nico, how do you deal with nerves when you're about to drop in for a race run? I'd say about to drop in is the best because you don't have much time to think about it. Um, it's more like a downhill race. There's so much waiting around that it's through the whole event. Like you wake up on the qualifying day nervous, you know, it's a heavy day. You go through that. And then the next day you wake up on race day and that's an even heavier day. So it's like managing it through the weekend that can feel pretty stressful, but I just try to focus on what I can control, which is like my lines, my strategy for the race, um, how I want to approach the track. And, and if I think about those, um, things that I can be doing that I can control, it, it, it makes it a lot easier than all the things that could go wrong or how is this guy, how fast is this other guy going to go things like that. what's the weather going to do it's like you can worry about it or not it's going to happen so yep and that's a good metaphor for life you know just worry about the things you can control right i mean racing teaches you so much about life like it's a it's a pretty cool learning experience to put everything you have into something and see what the outcome is normally you get out what you put in and it's a it's 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 a good lesson to learn at a young age I think it's pretty cool to get to do these races and take away those life lessons. Nice. Uh, here's, I think this next question is the most important question on the podcast. Yeah. Speaking of life lessons, pineapple uh, on pizza or no? I like the one with the ham and pineapple. The like Hawaiian. a Hawaiian pizza. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Controversial, but I That's agree. Fair. Yeah. I'm I like so over to these food questions, but Jared loves them. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't like food? Pineapple Jeff, pizza is very controversial, Jeff. Yeah. Jeff could take a pill and not have to eat if he, you know, if it was available. I'll eat anything. I'll eat, <laughs> I'll eat dog food. <laughs> <laughs> can, we, can we please sound clip that? <laughs> Sample that for whenever we need to. We'll just, just, just make a short form video of like, <laughs> where we like say like some really glowing intro of Nico and we really respect his opinion about bikes and his racing career <laughs> and then say we were on the podcast and here's the sound bite and it's just that. I'll eat anything. I'll eat dog food. <laughs> just take it fully out of context. Hey, some of that like high end artisan dog food, you know? Oh, oh yeah. Man. That's it's basically than, human food. Better than well, food. The, yeah. So the next question was, what does the future look like for frameworks, which you pretty much already answered earlier, so we don't need to answer that again. And then, of course, the one after that, Jared put in another food question. Well, it was just another, I mean, I kind of like, would like to go back to the question that he was kind of talking about. Okay. Because I was, I am interested if you are going to be making any new bikes of like different, you know, categories like an enduro bike or a trail bike and, um, yeah. or, or an EWS bike. Yeah. Hmm. 
the gas bike? Is that what you said? EWS. No, EWS. Oh. <laughs> or the e-bike. Yeah, tell us about all the new bikes you have in yeah. store. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got some plans to further develop the downhill chassis. Um, and then I'd love to make an enduro bike. I, I ride those bikes more than I ride my downhill bike for training anyway. And um, I love riding enduro stuff. It's super fun. So I live in a great spot for it too. Like in North Carolina, in Pisgah National Forest, we have like the best place to train for enduro. So um, I would love to make one. Like I've got a bunch of bikes that I've, I even have now, like an enduro, a nomad, they're raw here. Um, and I take notes every time. Some, sometimes like riding so many different bikes it takes away from my experience riding because I'm always like criticizing the bikes. And <laughs> normally it's negative, but I'm like ride a, a section of trail and I'm like thinking about this or that or how the bike worked. But anyway, with that said, I'd love to make an enduro bike. I have some things that I think that I could do that would make check all the boxes for me. And I've just waited because I'm, I wanted to figure out the construction and the, the materials with the downhill bike before making the trail bike so I didn't have two problems just going at the same time. And I think a lot of what I learned from the downhill bike, now that I'm figuring out the tubing, making it durable enough, I can put that into the enduro bike. And if it holds up for downhill, it's going to hold up for enduro. Um, it's just a matter of having the seat post insertion and changing some geo, changing some kinematics. But um, an enduro bike's a lot harder to make than a downhill bike because there's so many more constraints, mainly like seat post insertion and not being able to put the pivot through the seat post is makes it a lot more difficult to design. Um, and then having clearance for the rear wheel to the seat post on a long travel enduro bike and most of the time, I think that on like the four bar designs, you need a brace in front of the rear wheel. It's tough with longer travel 29ers to fit that brace and the seat post insertion, but then the bikes can have a, like a flexier rear end to front end feel. So there's just a lot more to consider. Like a downhill bike is beautifully simple, uh, especially mine. Like if it doesn't make it go faster racing, then do, you don't consider changing it. Um, the seat post only needs to stick in a couple of inches and um it doesn't matter how it goes uphill you have a 27.5 rear wheel it's pretty easy with clearance so it's like less drastically different things to make it do whereas an enduro bike has to do a lot um with saying that i'd love to and i think i'm pretty close now that i've figured out this tubing stuff with a downhill bike i'm gonna try a steel front triangle this winter um, the guys from Kodak in the UK, they, they're like a pretty well-known steel bike company. Um, Cy, the owner, comes to a lot of the races, and I've been chatting with him. And he offered to make me the front triangles for my bike in their factory. Nice. So he's got experience with it, and I know the bikes will be dialed and come out working. Um, so he's making me two front ends to, to put on. And then I also invested in a, in a carbon mold for the chain stay and seat stay. And the idea there is that the alignment of the rear end, there's like a lot of precise things, um, the brake mount, the rear axle, the chainstay pivot that all need to line up and a lot of small pieces welded together there. And I've struggled to get them to align perfectly. You kind of have to learn how much they're going to shrink and expand when they heat um, from welding and heat treat. 
And now that we're getting further along, we, we're getting them a lot better, but it's still a challenge control-wise over, over multiple frames. So the carbon ones will come out perfect every time, and they'll be lighter. So the unsuspended mass is the rear end of the bike. Basically, everything that isn't sagging the bike in under its own weight in, and is moving with the suspension, making those pieces lighter makes the suspension work better. As you can imagine, like as the the bike is going through compression and rebound, as your rear axle is moving up and down, the less weight that has to be shifted from going one direction to the other, the better the suspension and the more freely it will work. So um, if I can get that feel of carbon right and all those other things come with it, then that'll be a, a cool cool quality um and it's nice because the same rear end mold we designed to be able to work with a downhill bike and if i wanted to do an enduro bike so i was already using a, a boost hub um, but we made it so that it would have clearance for a 73 mil bottom bracket shell as well so really we designed an enduro sized rear end that will work on my downhill bike and it'll be cool that it's interchangeable it, it helps with amateurizing the cost of the mold over the two bikes and then if i want to change the size of the rear end to make it specific for the multiple size bikes i can move the main pivot and the rocker pivot and the shock and everything forward i'm using a udh so i don't have a flip chip at the axle but i can make the rear end specific to the front end size so it's all proportionally correct moving just the front triangle so there's a bunch of stuff that I'm interested in, in diving into. And like I said, one day it could be cool to sell them, but <clears throat> for now it's, um, it's a fun challenge and process to figure out. And I'm really excited to, to kind of step into that enduro, enduro realm too. just, like I said, I ride those bikes so much that it would be cool to ride one of mine, just a, f- a fun hobby project to, yeah. to do. <clears throat> nice. Yeah. That's that's you're starting to talk like the head engineer of a highly qualified bike brand. It sounds like, <laughs> which is yeah, I do that too. Cool. <laughs> yeah. I am, yeah. I, I is. <laughs> I'm, I'm all the jobs at Frank Works. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, that's wild. I'm I'm yeah I'm looking forward to seeing what you pull off in the next handful of years that that reminded me of which this isn't a listener question this is just a question that popped into my head that I thought of because um, I remember talking to you about booster ends at one point any controversial opinions you have or maybe not controversial but just hot takes you have on mountain bike standards hub spacing because I remember you had the whole thought of like boost versus super boost and I don't know anything off the top of your head. Do you think is just should totally be changed and go another direction in the bike industry right now? Um, <clears throat> not like that. That any standard is really bad, but there's just too many. Yeah, I I just hate how like stuff isn't com- compatible. Um, I think it would make it a lot easier, and I think there's some stuff coming that is going to be going in that direction. But um, just that there's. Four is there four hub standards right now? It's like I've at, lost. At least. I've lost count. It's just too many. Um, so I think we should just like pick one that makes the most sense and and stick to it. Um, one thing like that for downhill and maybe now with e bikes, the the post mount standard for brakes has been the same for so long, and I feel like brakes could be they're, they're limited by like fitting on that post mount. 
being able to make them bigger or make the pistons bigger. And if the posts were further apart, you could probably make the brakes stronger. Six bolt is probably 30 years old and like probably not the strongest thing. <laughs> so, um, they, they, it could be waste. Like, and, and cyclocross did that by make, or even gravel. Now I guess the cyclocross doesn't exist anymore. It's now gravel. Hey, but, hey, hey, cyclocross <laughs> is still cool. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that category is, they changed the mounts. The flat mount. Yeah. So yeah, they did. But um, even there, there's like no standard to flat mount. There's like all these different bolts and spacers and right. Like, They'll get there. It's kind of still. Yeah. I'm not asking them to change the standard another time. Like uh, we don't need another standard, but I think that the brakes could probably be better if they could be bigger for downhill and e-bikes. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, fair. Yeah, that is fair. I, I always thought it was interesting, you know, cause I, I grew up racing mountain bikes and downhill a ton and the, what racers do, especially at a world cup level professional stage, like you're doing is what you're doing to bikes and demanding out of bikes is quite substantially different than what the kind of average rider does. So you needing way more powerful brakes totally makes sense. Most people probably they're they're looking good with those two twenty rotors and four piston brakes right now. They're going uh, over the bars regardless. I was telling Nico's today I need to pull a two twenty off the front of my bike and put a two hundred on. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's like at the time when that brake starts to fade because it got too hot, most people are not having fun riding anymore so they're gonna take a break <laughs> yeah they're like well they've already they've stopped already, from arm pump yeah they've already stopped from arm pump or stopped they, to they, reply to their body can't or, go yeah. further than the brakes can for sure <laughs> but a lot of the racetracks are are yeah. steep and relentless so yeah totally yeah i i really think there should be something in professional sports where you you basically show sort of the average joe partaking in the same thing I mean, imagine, so let's talk about the World Cup right now. Let's put an average soccer player, like full-blown average guy, like out on the field with the same team and see what happens. <laughs> like, let's go to a World Cup and put an average Joe on the track and film him. Like, I just think there should be – it's hard to compare and understand right, what's yeah. happening at these professional events if you don't really, really know so much about the sport. Yeah. It's hard to know, like, what are these professionals really doing? Yeah. And someone, it would be great to someone see. Someone said about the Olympics, like yeah. – you know, oh, it'd be perfect. awesome if some average Joe jumped in the pool and tried to swim next to these guys. Yeah, yeah it, like, would it would be so great. It would give be a lot horrible. Of it'd be f- yeah, yeah. we'll give it context. Yeah. yeah. I think, too, with, like, downhill racing specifically, it's really hard to tell how steep the stuff is. Yeah, oh, yeah. 100%. You, you have the, no idea what that is like in, in real life versus the on camera. Yeah, and you can't see, like, the texture of the ground as, as well, mm-hmm. like how many intricacies there are in roots and rocks and yeah. ruts and holes and yeah, if you how, go to the race in person. It is. Yeah, it, it doesn't yeah. look so bad on TV, but if you go in person, you can you can see firsthand. Yeah, or even that small little gap that the top twenty guys are doing that no one else can even pull off, right? Yeah, like yeah. that kind of stuff is is so cool. It's also so hard to see on TV. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like we should, Jared. Say, I feel like we should skip this one because the next one's better. But go ahead, man. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna skip this one. Ask whatever question right. you like, Jared. If you could have a Mario Kart Mario Kart item on a downhill race run, what would it be? Um, I'm not really familiar with that, but probably that rocket boost. 
Fair. Yeah. That's, I mean, that, that would be more yeah. useful than the other items. <laughs> like a banana. Sure. He yeah. said banana peel earlier because that would be great. But that yeah. would only ruin one of your competitors <laughs> and the guy behind you. And only the one that qualified one step worse than Slower you. Slower than you. Yeah. <laughs> like, sure. yeah, one step better, you know? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the rocket. Yeah. I mean, that would put you right at the front. That's fair. So or at least you played Mario little, Kart. Don't pretend like Good little boost. <laughs> good little boost through a flat section yeah. would be sweet. That's a good answer. How about what scares the crap out of you? Um, if anything, I, I would. Str- I struggle the most with the steeper parts of the tracks. Like any split that is, you're working for the speed, and you have to like generate the momentum through like pumping the ground or even pedaling um, or just working the bike through the terrain. I'm normally like at the front of those splits and the steeper stuff. I feel like it's easy to lose time in those quickly. Like if you're braking too much um, also like lighter guys can slow their weight down quicker. Mm. So maybe more nimble. Um, just like coming into steep gnarly sections at speed where you're like going over a blind crest into a steep section that you know you're gonna have to break in and like not over breaking into it. I, I, I'm, it, it's not like scared to die, but like just over break. I, I tend to do that in, in those steeper sections. And I feel like tracks have more of that, like world cups. We used to race in places like South Africa or Canberra or places that, were pretty flat and you had to you had to like be good on those flat sections and now it seems like they take away all the turns and they're just steep and straight and like they're just gnarly like who can break the least not the best <laughs> yeah um so yeah nice for those sense. for those listening that aren't super clear with splits uh do you want to give a quick rundown on yeah so at the races they just have sectors of the track um, they'll have, and they're not always the same, but on different courses, maybe like the first minute, the second minute, the third minute, there'll be a split time that'll give you your, your rank at that particular and, place. And you and basically every other racer is obviously clearly deeply analyzing your speed in between the splits and what everyone else is doing. And yeah, you, cause you can, you know, what's in those sections and, and like where you, where you stacked up in that sector of, of the track and you can look at like spots where you did well and spots where you can improve and it helps you to come up with your strategy. They have time practice on Fridays at the races and then they have uh, qualifying on Saturdays and racing Sundays. So in each of those sessions, you can analyze where you are in those sectors of the race and try to improve those sections. Yeah. Nice. Right. Good answer. I wasn't expecting anything. I, I thought you were just a man of steel. speaking of well it's not really speaking of steel but does the industry cater to post racing careers what are your thoughts on that um i see i see quite a few people that have raced in the past get into a industry job i don't know if it caters to it but i think that maybe some racers don't know how to do anything else so that's the only job that they can do. And uh, I think having experience is valuable, though. Like in certain certain industry jobs, uh, you, can, you can step in, and if you've been around it for so long, have experience that somebody else wouldn't 
be able to have. So there, there are definitely some advantages to a, a racer getting into jobs like that. Um, and I see it pretty often. So nice. Probably. Yeah. Nice. Last question. Last question. Go for it, Liam. How do you get back in the saddle and progress your riding after a bad injury? Um, you just gotta, I would say like the, the first thing is to take the necessary time off. Sometimes if you start riding again too early, you can develop bad habits. If you're, if you're nursing an injury, you kind of protect that area and maybe ride around the injury and then you're not hundred percent committed and can start to develop a bad habit due to that. I think a lot of racers are like having their mind. They want to come back as quick as they can, but I've learned that it's best to wait until you are hundred percent and you can ride the way you want to and try to use that time off to maybe like watch some old footage of yourself and maybe watch some guys that you want to ride like and try to come back like a reinvented version of yourself, ride the way you want to. Um, not with like nursing an injury that you have to ride soft or however to, to get around. Um, and, and when you're out on the bike, like be disciplined and make sure you're, you're riding the way you want to. Nice. Nice. Good advice. That is good advice. Yeah. Nice work, Nico. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. You're a lot more well-spoken well now than you were when you were 16. <laughs> I'd say most people. I think you, you're probably the same too. Nico told some stories before this. Oh so. gosh! I'm sure both Nico and I have a lot of funny stories about each other. Um, <laughs> we've we've been we've been friends for way too long, um, and, and roommates at one time. I, I heard I, you guys slept in bunk beds. Yeah, yeah, we did. That's amazing. I remember when Facebook sort of like became a thing. It must have been 2009 or something. We were roommates, and I remember posting on my Facebook wall like. Hey Nico, can you bring a popsicle upstairs? <laughs> and, and you did, and it was like <laughs> it was hilarious. Uh, and uh, looking back at that, I'm like, man, that just seems like so long ago. I feel like we're old, but I don't know, it wasn't that long ago. But it was it's long ago enough that it's funny to me. Good so, times. That's it was great. good times. Yeah, That's I mean, awesome. I think racing mountain bikes has brought a ton to my life, and I think you as well, obviously. And it's such a good sport to to be in and a good hobby to be in or whatever you want to call it. It's a good thing to be an enthusiast about, which is really fun. So Nico, where do where, uh, if people are listening this far, where can they, uh, kind of follow along? Obviously your Instagram, N E K O M U L A L L Y. Yeah. At yeah. Nico Mullally. Probably your, your best place. Is that your most active social media channel? I would say so for, for most of us downhill racers, that's the best place to post up to date quick, content and then my youtube channel as well as my name nico malali um and we made a frameworks racing page as well that we don't really update very often <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> i have trouble with with all the social media it's like I, I i don't know i like to to post stuff on there that's relevant and has some some substance to it and if i don't have anything to say like i don't know don't don't post anything yeah so. <laughs> But it's exciting when we got stuff, like when we have new stuff for the bike, when, we, um, when we're racing and we're working through some new things. It's, it's pretty cool to be able to share that stuff. And, 
And like I was saying, not have to wait until an embargoed date to share the info. Like, I've got prototype parts. Here's what they are. Here's the idea. Here's how they wrote. Yeah. Pretty cool to be able to share that. It's awesome. Yeah, that is cool. I, I think you've written some really well done Instagram captions. Not that most people probably read long Instagram captions these days, but yours are worth reading because I think you read some really good stuff, which is pretty cool. And I think, uh, yeah, over the years, you've done a really good job at that. Even when you worked with Hand Up to design your own gloves, I remember reading that one and going, man, that was a really well-written post. <laughs> and I, I care a lot about apparel nerd stuff these days because working on Kettle so much. And so when you wrote that, I was like, wow, that was really good. Um, and that's kind of what spawned the idea to be like, Jared, we should get Nico to write some articles on O-Chain and 5 Dev Cranks <laughs> and other cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, I enjoy so. writing the articles because you can go deeper with, with those details. And that's kind of like the idea of doing a lot of the video stuff that we do too, is yeah. to be able to go deeper. And like, if it's not for you, then you don't have to watch it or you don't have to read it. But for the people who are interested, you, you almost can't write enough. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty cool to have a platform to be able to do that. Yeah. That's rad. Nice, man. Well, yeah, for those of you listening, um, hit Nico on all those platforms. He's got a lot of good stuff going on, which is really cool. Uh, another place to find all of that, just go to worldwidecycler.com and hit the search bar and type in N-E-K-O and enter. And there you go. Thank you very much for listening. If you've listened this far, we love you. We appreciate you. Nico, thanks for being here. And thanks for 5Dev for hosting you while you're out here. I guess that's why you're in California Yeah, right absolutely. Now, right? I, I visited the 5Dev <laughs> factory the past couple days. And these guys uh, chauffeured me up here to your yeah. beautiful shop <laughs> to do this podcast. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. They got to drive me back to San Diego now, so we got we got to go. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Nico. Thanks, Thank Nico. you, everyone. See you guys next time. Thanks. Peace. Peace.